Now entering Nerdist.com. Hey everyone, this is Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I myself am a television writer, having written for such shows as Supernatural, Nickelodeon, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently working for the DreamWorks program Puss in Boots, which is available right now via Netflix. Uh, Check it out. It's pretty fun. I am also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio uh, that is available as a podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For information about the Thrilling Adventure Hour, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel and it's hosted by Ben Blecker where he gets a bunch of writers and he asks them lots of questions and it's starting now so this will be the end of the theme. I have been lucky enough to uh, see a bunch of episodes of CW's upcoming iZombie uh, and it's really good. Uh, are you guys Veronica Mars fans? Yeah? You are going to really dig iZombie. It, it has a vibe that only Rob and Diane can bring to a thing um, and so I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, and my other guest, I have not gotten to see her show yet because I'm not that inside. Um, but I'm really excited about it, and it's based on her own experiences and on a short film that she made. It's called Unreal, uh, and it premieres in June. Uh, and it's sort of a behind-the-scenes at a reality uh, show. Uh, and it sounds really fun. So we'll hear about those. We'll hear about all kinds of things. Uh, let's bring them out. Welcome Sarah Shapiro and Diane Ruggiero. Keep clapping until they're all the way seated. Keep doing it. Keep clapping. Yeah. We're all tremendous fans. Look, it's not an embarrassing number. Could have been way worse. Hi. Hi, Mom. Dad, all my cousins. Yep, everybody watching at home. Um, You guys, thank you so much for being here. I want to, uh, as I said, we're going to turn it over to questions from these guys as soon as we can, and they are all listeners to the Nerdist Writers panel, so they know the type of questions we expect, right? All right. Um, that's intelligent, thoughtful questions. Um, but I want to talk about like personal the... Personal questions that are slightly <laughs> awkward. Yes, personal, slightly awkward. Yes. This isn't a Hardwick podcast. This isn't how we do it. Um, I want to talk to you guys about the projects that are about to premiere iZombie and Unreal, and just hear about how those got developed and where they came from. Uh, obviously, very different projects from each other, but uh, you know, we're always interested in similarities in the development process. Uh, can you guys walk us through those? And I would suggest you, you take first? your okay. microphone okay. off and hold it like an first ice cream cone. Can cover. I ask an important question first? Is there like a tablecloth down there, or am I flashing all of you right now? Flashing you? No? Okay, good. <laughs> I didn't want to do like a basic instinct as South by I, We appreciate it. Listen, we could get a little press for this panel. Hello. Watch I Zombie. Bam! <laughs> um, so Unreal was actually developed um, from a short that I had at South by two years ago, and that short was called Sequin Rays. And um, I did it through the American Film Institute Directing Workshop for Women. And then brought it here, and uh, I actually sold it as a show before we came to South by. Yeah, so... Wait, quick, quick question. Yeah. Who do you think you are? <laughs> um, uh, how, how did that happen? You've been working in the business in, on the reality side for a while, right? As a, uh, in what capacity? Um, I had worked on The Bachelor when I was, like, 23, and then I actually, oh, okay. and actually left Hollywood, like, fled, and was like, I don't want to do this anymore, and ended up in advertising in Portland. And my ad agency up there helped me sell the show um, before we came to South By and helped pay for the short, too. 
what? <laughs> what how did they how did they help you sell the show? Um, they have actually an entertainment division, and one of the execs there had a previous relationship with Nina Lederman, who's the exec I sold to, and she was sort of like, "Do you want to come pitch?" And I was like, "I've never done it, but okay." But I, that makes me sound a little more naive than I was, I have to say, because... You've been in the business for I, a I've, You sound awesome. Yeah, well, I've been, I've been writing since I was five. I've, this is, like, all I've ever wanted to do. I've been working steadily towards it, so it wasn't, like, that random. Um, and I also knew when I made the short that I wanted to do it as a series. So I was actually, like, hell-bent on doing it as a series. It just the pitching came way faster than I thought it would, and it was before I had an agent or anything, so... Yeah. Did it change the nature of the short? Did you treat it more like a pilot? Um, that's a good question. I don't really think I knew the difference at that time. So I felt like I knew exactly what I was doing, but now looking back like to two years ago, I realized how little I actually knew about what it meant. I think like so many indie filmmakers, I'm sort of obsessed with the golden age of TV and realizing that I'm much more interested in television right now than I am in features. Um, and I think I'm a case study for so many people at this point, like indie filmmakers ending up in TV, but not totally knowing what that means until you get there. So sort of saying, like, I knew exactly what would make sense as a series in my head, but having to make it perform on the level that it needs to for a huge audience and a, and a big network. So how did that start to happen? So clearly, like, the, the uh, premise was sound and it's gettable um, and do you want to just tell everybody here the premise yeah sure it's behind the scenes on a reality show it's a, sort of about one producer who's had a nervous breakdown and is <laughs> um, it's a little bit like Nurse Jackie sort of but like for a reality TV producer so it's a little bit ripping back the curtain on reality TV but it's also very much like a workplace drama but a black comedy yeah. too Makes sense. Um, so, so you had that, and you, again, you knew what you wanted this show to be. So, what was the process like once you sold it? Um, well, Marty Knoxon came on and is my co-creator, and so that was, you know, the sky opened up and Marty came down, and she made the whole thing um, so doable and so much less intimidating. Like my favorite story about her is the first time we actually wrote together. I think we were sitting on the floor in her uh, guest house in her backyard eating cookies and playing with puppies. Like, she just made the whole thing really, really doable. And I think she fell in love with the idea in a pretty big way and had so much passion for it. So she helped me figure that out. But um, it's funny, we joke about somebody told me when I sold the short that TV is just like the short, um, except a few less awkward pauses and you need to get a ruler and do act breaks, which <laughs> could not have been... <laughs> More oversimplified, yeah. It was really, it was really, it's really a lot more complicated than that. Had you yeah. written uh, television scripts in the past? No, I had not. <laughs> sorry, it's okay. I'm sorry. It, um, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I had written features. I the thing is, I came You're up in indie, yeah, I came up in indie film and always expected to be an indie filmmaker. But again, like so many indie filmmakers, they handed I, you a TV show instead. <laughs> Like so many. Like no, so they many started gravitating towards television more and more as as more opened up and television has really become the place where you can live with characters for so much longer and go deeper into worlds. And So um, so I had outlined, when I sold the show, I had a really good idea of like the season arc and really pretty good idea of the characters. 
But in terms of plotting out the pilot and really plotting out the season, Marty and I did a lot of that together once she came on. And I think, you know, there was... was Let me just interrupt for a second. Was it just the two of you doing this planning stage? Yes, it was. So you had, like, this mini writer's room experience (laughs) with with one of the best (laughs) showrunners. Yeah, Yeah, with puppies and cookies. I'm doing something so incredibly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, where's your puppy budget? I know. There should be... I want a llama next season. (laughs) Well, I think... And again, like, Marty's genius lies in how easy she makes everything feel because now that I know her better, I understand that so much of that is, you know, nervousness is really like the worst block to moving forward. And I think that when it happened, I was so on the spot in terms of, I started writing the outline by myself and I had a bunch of different people giving me feedback and I had notes coming from every direction. And I just, it was so much more than I'd ever dealt with on that level. And as soon as I sat down with Marty, she was like, it's no big deal. Let's just start talking about it. And the truth is, it actually is a really big deal. What was happening was a big deal, but she made it doable. Um, And I think the other thing is that I really thought about arcs filmically. And when I look back on where I thought the season was going to go and even where the pilot was going to go, I kept resolving things. I kept sort of being like, and then this happens and she's done. And, like, the whole point of TV is like, no, 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 it's not done. It's never, you know, you want to keep going. Um, and there were just tropes that... Yes, yes, indie filmmaker. Let me tell you about syndication. <laughs> <laughs> there were tropes, you know, television tropes and, and traps that I didn't really know about. Like, what I really wanted to happen in the pilot was that it was this girl's, you know, it was the night she was going to quit her job. Like, she's going to quit her job. It's the night she was going to quit her job. And everybody kept saying, false stakes, false stakes. You can't do that. And, um, and now, two years later, I sort of understand what they were talking about, right? But... To me, that seemed like a perfectly good arc. And I'm also a huge character writer and a huge, I'm really into moments and like nonverbal communication and subtext and everything is just like unsaid. And it really worked in the short, I think. But Marty's like, nah, they kind of need to say it. <laughs> they should probably say out loud what they're thinking. That would probably help. And did that all make yeah. sense to you? I it mean, did. I mean, I think it's a hard thing to swallow. It is. Well, it's also, you know, I think. The biggest thing for me to wrap my head around, I think, is just plot. Like, I'm a huge story. Like, sort of, like, what's, sorry, I'm like, what's happening, you know, what's happening underneath for all the characters, why they're doing what they're doing, what they want, why they can't get it. But I think the part that Marty and also our writer's room really supported me in was just, like, the plot, plot, plot. Like, you know, just that not, let's talk about um, how they're feeling and what they want and why they're lying on the floor with a bottle of vodka, but then let's also talk about like what's actually happening in the scene that we can see. So um, I feel like that's been a huge learning curve for me in terms of just plot. Yeah. Like enough it's, plot. It's an important thing that you learn early on in TV. It's, yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it honestly, did, did when you started out in TV, Diane, was that an easy thing for you? I mean, it, it was alarming to me. Um, in my, on my first staff jobs that, like, it's a machine. Well, it's so funny because I love that I'm busting your balls about um, being an indie filmmaker and getting a TV show. I was a waitress and got a TV show, ah. so I'm like, I'll bust my own balls about it now. <laughs> but um, I had no idea. I mean, I the first thing, uh, the first thing I sold was actually a, a movie, and um, Nora Ephron had bought it. Oh, and wow. the first time I had, well, she had Columbia buy it for her. And the first time I went to a meeting with her, she said, well, you have to... Re- There's this book that I want you to get. It's called Robert McGee's Structure. Or Story. Yeah. Story. Yeah. And, um, 
was so devastated because she was basically like, I have nice dialogue, but you have no idea what you're doing. I was like, going to say, I mean, no clue yeah. about plot or structure. Knowing and, the very little I know about you, which is mostly from your work, I imagine it's clever people standing around talking was the, was that first script. We, yeah, can't we just throw in some jokes? Right. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> dialogue is a big one for me, too. That was the part yeah. that I was always like, but I can just, brrr, it's all coming out, yeah. it's all coming out, but it's like, where are the goalposts? I have to say, my favorite. Probably my biggest learning moment as far as structure and plotting goes is uh, I, I'm doing Veronica Mars. I did Veronica Mars for three seasons, and we were extremely proud that we had a season-long mystery every year and that we solved it and ended it. And yeah. Because most shows will just, you know, they string you along and string you along, and then you're like, wait, this was just heaven the whole time? <laughs> wait, most shows. Like, come on. Um, you guys are angels? Wait, what? Um uh, not that I love both shows, so I shouldn't say that. But um, what shows am I talking about? But um, we were very diligent about knowing that we're wrapping it up at 22, and and then it's on the writers to come up with a fantastic idea for the next season and to find a cool way to replicate it. And but what I think so many of us loved about Veronica Mars, and, wow. and what I really love about iZombie 2 is, you know, you it is a plot machine. You guys have that, but there's this great... I mean, you're there for the characters. There, there are great character moments in there. Um, you know, like, I am, I am flashing right now on stuff from, like, season three of Veronica Mars when it was just uh, characters being in the moment. Mm-hmm. And, and so how did you guys find that balance on both shows? Um, well, I think on Veronica Mars, one of the, the great things is we just had... People were so into it from the very beginning we had such a strong fan base and it was very clear very early on who the writers were interested interested in writing for and what was landing and we just had such a, a, a great time putting different putting different people in that world together because yeah. they were all just at the top of their game and doing and doing well so with that was just fun almost it was you're there with these great characters and these great actors and it's like what can we do with them let's screw with them What'll Absolutely, that's the best. Um, did you but, ever feel that, were there conversations in the room, or did you ever get notes about, you know, we need more plot, or it's getting too character-heavy, it's getting too soapy? Um, I don't think we ever got the too soapy note, because we were on the CW. Sure, <laughs> so sure. No more soap. We want no love triangles, and everyone should be unattractive. Thank you. Um, but... Um, I think with Veronica Mars, the thing that's much different between Veronica Mars and our new show, iZombie, is that Veronica Mars was noir, so we did want to have all the twists and turns in the mystery. And so the cases we spent, while we did have a lot of character um, development and, and um, romantic storylines and personal storylines, um, we also had mysteries that were twisty and turny and well thought out, and that was our, our, kind of our bread and butter. With iZombie... We know that you tuned in because it's called iZombie, and you want to see some. <laughs> you want to see something. You want to see some brain eating. You want to see some. There's there. There was the promise of the show wasn't so much about the case of the week as it was about the character and what this this zombie girl would be going through. So it's less about the mystery or the crime for us with this, and more about the character and the brain eating. I was curious about the much like life. <laughs> less about the mystery and crime. More about the brain eating. Um, I'm curious about the development of that and how the show, how iZombie started to take shape. Um, was the property brought to 
you and Rob? Did you guys seek it out? How People did it don't bring me property. <laughs> the property was about to rob, uh-huh. and um, no, they. Uh, well, they I came think to, at this point you guys are no, no, you know, unknown commodity. And... But Rob, um, one of the great things about working with Rob is that everybody loves him and wants to work with him and brings him cool things. So he gets so incredibly busy that he needs me. <laughs> um, so uh, no, he zombie. Uh, the zombie genre is one that I'm super into, and I'm also a big sci-fi comic book nerd. And Rob knows that about me and makes fun of that a lot. Um, so when they they were really interested in him doing the project um, based on the comic, and he just it wasn't something that he was he he was interested, but he had a lot of other things that he was he was doing, and they but they really wanted him to do it. And then he finally called me and said, "So there's this this property, I Zombie," and I said, "In, I'm in, totally fine. When do we start? Let's get going." And so he that's how it happened. So and then as far as when when it came time to kind of figure out what the show was, because the show is different from the comic it's, book. Yes, I mean, inspired by is, the comic, yeah. but. And there's a lot of great stuff in there for the fans of the comic book, I will say. Even beyond the opening credits, which are... Uh, which Michael Mike Allred, Allred did, yeah. and it's amazing. I have to say, my, my, the big relief is that the creator of the comic, yeah. Chris Robertson, and, um, and Michael Allred, who did, did, did the art, both loved the show. Because yeah. that would have sucked, you know, if you do something based on someone else's work. Like, if someone adapted your short for, for you, <laughs> I... That would be so lame. Wouldn't you just hate them? Um, so I was terrified that they would hate us because there's no wear terrier there's no ghost and yeah. they, it would be very much like what have you done to my song but instead they were like thanks for putting us on tv you guys are awesome so how did you guys start the process of picking out from that source material what would make up the elements of this show and i'm curious about when the uh procedural element started to come into play too or was that always part of it well, there are no puppies and cookies, and I'm really <laughs> pissed at Rob about that because he's worked with Marty, and he probably knows that that's something you should do. <laughs> Next show. Next show. <laughs> but um, we knew that we, we like a procedural, and I don't know how it is on your show if you have if it's if it changes every week, but having a procedural just makes the it makes the engine so much easier. It just gives you kind of like a framework to build the rest of the show around and so that you can have your character moments and you don't have to worry about it getting too soapy and it, it's you, you know what you're, you're doing every week. You're solving, there's a task and you have it and you solve it. and then It you, forces a kind of structure it on It forces the a structure. Yeah. Thank you for making a sentence out of my rambling. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> the only um, thing I'm here for. <laughs> thank you for putting structure to my rambling. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> so we knew that we wanted to do that early on but it was just trying to figure out how to do that. And in the comic it was more similar to the comic our show has the zombie girl is eating I should never call her zombie girl that sounds the girl who's a zombie um, the titular <laughs> zombie she um, when she eats a brain she gets like flashes of memories which is a real thing if you eat someone's brain you will get flashes of memories so my life is not that fun so don't eat mine um, but you will get flashes of memories and she gets some of their abilities and um, so in the comic that happens and she's more compelled to um, right wrongs that the person whose brain she is ingesting experienced and while we like that aspect we didn't want it to be on TV it might be turn into like touched by a zombie and so we thought we wanted to make it more like also shows like Law and Order are on forever and we've done these little tiny independent shows that people are really passionate about but then you're on for three seasons and you're like I really wanted a pool so <laughs> we're, so we figured let's let's add something to this to make it a little easier uh, I wanted to ask both of you guys, and then we'll turn it over to questions from the crowd, um, about 
something I really liked in iZombie, and I'm wondering how you contend with this in Unreal, is playing the metaphor of the show. Uh, and there's a really nice thing in iZombie as she eats these brains and sort of picks up the abilities. You know, here is a 20-something girl whose world is now opening around her, and she's discovering what she could have been or could be. Um, is this Was this part of the discussion in developing the show and in writing the show? Do you discuss this with your writers? Well, we just... Something that Rob and I discussed a lot that we kind of found in the development process, but it is that he... He calls it quarter-life crisis. I was calling it pre-life crisis because I can't take anyone under 30 seriously sometimes. Well, I'm you're old. in the right place. But um, <laughs> Sorry. But no, I um, quarter-life crisis is just such a common thing that you're like, I'm going to high school and then I'll graduate and go to college and I'm going to do this thing and then I'll be married and have this boyfriend and this is what I'll be doing at 26. That is probably not what you'll be doing at 26. At 26, you'll probably know what your alcoholic beverage of choice is. You'll probably have had some experiences that you regret and you'll be in that moment where you're saying this is not at all what I thought life would be like or what it would feel like what am I going to do like what am I going to do now and we definitely and and adding to that oh and I'm a zombie so no I can't do any of those things because I can't marry the love of my life because zombie is probably sexually transmitted and I I can't really be a heart surgeon because that could go awry real quick so (laughs) working with dead people is my best option and so that's it's just it all fits in so nicely what, how did you contend with, you know, making this a something about more than just working on a reality show? Yeah, well, so we actually have a story engine, too, in that we have a show within a show. So we actually have a reality show inside of our show, and that has been a really sort of fantastic and confusing part of the process where people sometimes get confused and are like, <laughs> wait, what, this is about, like, girls in dresses and diamonds? And it's not at all what it's about for us. It's about a feminist having a crisis while working on the show. So... For us, I think for Marty and I both, we're really obsessed with the princess fantasy and how it sets up women and men to sort of fail, like, no matter what. there's It's kind of unattainable. So because we have this show called Everlasting inside of our show, um, <laughs> at the end of every episode, a girl gets cut or a girl gets a diamond ring or something. So this princess fantasy is kind of nonstop. Um, that is so brilliant. Yeah, and then we also have... We call it kind of like the beautiful butterfly people and then the mole people that live in the walls. (laughs) So the people who make the show, like, live in shadows and wear, like, crappy, you know, the crappy, like, puffy coats and eat at craft service and, you know, are just, like, kind of these monsters that, like, feed on these beautiful butterfly people that are in the light all the time. So that's kind of our metaphor about, like, consumption and womanhood and sort of women destroying other women is a big one for us, too. And why it's so satisfying for for viewers, I think, to watch, like, really beautiful women be destroyed. Um, and we talk a lot about, like, Revenge of the Nerds, too, that some of the people that grow up to work on these shows, you know, they, they gain power, but um, they're the kids in high school that hated the cheerleaders, and now they get to totally mess with them and um, and destroy them on national television. So for us, it's, it's a lot about, yeah, like, body, Im- body image, womanhood, the princess fantasy. That's kind of our... It's great. Thing. It's so yeah. loaded, and it gives you so many different types of characters yeah. to play with. That's really cool. All right, let's get some questions from you guys. Uh, I have lots more, but I do want to hear from you. Who has one? Come over to the microphone. Uh, please keep your questions uh, somewhat brief and uh, somewhat general so both of these guys can answer them. So this kind of ties into the whole metaphor that you were just talking about. I worked in architecture for 10 years. So when I see how architects are portrayed in television and movies, we just laugh because it's 
they don't design everybody's their own an architect. Well, and they're also they men. Their they're own all houses, men. And they carry models around. And um, So how do you, as someone who came out of the reality industry, try to portray it realistically, but then not, and it kind of ties into what you were just saying about metaphors. Um, well, I think, you know, we try and be as authentic as we can. And the funny thing for me is, you know, it's a day job I had when I was 23. It's not really like, I wasn't like a reality person. Um, but for anyone who's worked in television or on crews, like our crew was so passionate about making our show, I think because it was about them. And it was really fun on our set because sometimes we'd have to go background, raise your hand because we couldn't tell who were extras and who were real crew. <laughs> and everyone had the experience of asking like a fake sound guy, like, hey, is her mic on? He's like, I'm, a, I'm an extra. <laughs> like, um, so um, we try and keep it really authentic so that it feels real to the world. Um, and I think the other big thing for us is having equal compassion for both sides of the camera. So having a lot of compassion for the mole people. Um, and the thing about reality TV is, like, it's so easy to look down on it. But one thing I love about reality crews is that, in my experience, they tend to be, like, the kids who couldn't afford to go to film school, and they just had to get a job. And so they're often, like, pretty blue-collar, super um, just, like, loyal, hardworking, like, people who really love film and television but didn't get thrown into that upper echelon. So, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of love. We have a lot of love for those people and we do, we're obsessed with the reality of it. Like how gross you feel at three o'clock in the morning having eaten like marshmallow fluff and nacho cheese dip for dinner and you haven't seen your family in three months, you know? So, and I think that your point about architecture is really interesting. Um, and I think, I think at some points we underestimated how interesting that stuff would be to people. People find it pretty fascinating. They want to know like, how do you turn the walkie on and what's the walkie lingo and what do you do? You know, it's like people really like the details, which I think was surprising. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, this sort of leads me to another question, and it's one, you know, as someone who writes genre stuff and someone who writes um, hours and half hours, it's one I get a lot. But I'm curious to hear about, again on iZombie, the, coming up with the rules for the world and how do you find a new take on... Uh, you know, a, a trope that's been done many times, especially in the past five or six years. Um, we, we spent an unbelievable amount of time talking about it, and I drove Rob crazy with, with saying things like, a zombie wouldn't do that. And he would, <laughs> it's just not something he's, he would constantly remind me, Diane, I understand you're passionate about that. There are no zombies. I'm like, okay, so there's no zombies. But in a world in which zombies exist, zombies would not do that. Um, we did spend a lot of time just debating how we wanted it to be, how we wanted it to be different. We knew we couldn't compete with The Walking Dead, and so we weren't even about to try. So we wanted to put a spin on it that felt like it was ours and cool and something that we haven't seen before. And um, so we spent a lot of time setting up how that would work and how they would live in the world and how it would be metaphoric for, for the experience of being kind of isolated and not being who you thought you were, not turning out to be who you thought you were. And um, as far as the rules go, I think that they will evolve as the as the show evolves, and you would have to. Um, well, you have to leave the door open. You have to leave right? the door open because you'll so, discover things exactly when you have a writer's room, when you have ten episodes, and, you, and other people episodes. start to weigh in, and yeah. you see that maybe your idea wasn't the best idea, and there's a bigger way to do this. Yeah. So it's definitely there's an evolution to it, but we did start off with firm rules because if you don't, then it's just people call. BS so early on it, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm an attorney, and I, I don't know why architects don't get treated right, but all the lawyer shows are true. 
Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> so everything that happens in them, it, it's, you know, suits is exactly what it happens. Um, well, so my question is, I, I, I find it really interesting, you know, the different rules for the different kinds of writing for different genres. Um, and if you were to say what are, like, the top three, um, you know, golden rules of writing for television that's different from writing for other things, what would those be? What are, what are some valuable rules specific to writing television? <laughs> First, oh, I encourage Don't say fuck is rule one. <laughs> rule two is no one can pee. There's no urination <laughs> we, on television. We did, we did pee-pee. You did pee. Oh, you had to. Oh yeah, we. Oh my, I'm so pissed off right there's now. There's so much pee. Pardon the pun. We were not allowed to even show. Guys, check oh, out oh my god, Unreal. there's a little kid. So I'm so sorry, pee. little kid. Oh my god. It's, I said fire truck. He's. So I just said it really fast. It. I'm from New Jersey. It's. I'm so sorry. Dang. These are good rules. What else? What else did you guys learn, uh, or have you learned over the years? Act breaks also is Act that because you, you want them yeah. to not that people watch commercials anymore, but you, if yeah. they did, you would want them. Sorry, advertisers. Everybody watches commercials. <laughs> commercials are awesome. Oh, but so, I, I will um, add. I mean, even working for a Netflix show where there are no commercials, we still write to you act still breaks. Still want that powerful act break yeah. to keep people around. I think, you know, one thing for me is a big thing is, like, convenience. Like, like uh, really keeping an eye out for plot that feels too convenient. Like, oh, my God. And then the three people she has conflict with just happen to show up right there and be talking about the thing that she overheard. Like, really, because as you get, I think, like, as you're just slamming through stuff and you get tired and you're trying to crank out story, we always had sort of a bullshit meter in the room. Yeah, for someone for, overhears something. Yeah, it's someone overhears something is always like, wow, that was very convenient. And sometimes it needs to happen. Um, I think a good rule for me, again, from transitioning from very slow-paced, sort of moody indie film to television is get into the scene as late as possible and leave as early as possible. And it's really just brevity and getting to the point. And again, one thing Marty, who's my co-creator, helped me with was just let them say it sometimes. Because I just never, you know, like, I'm always, like, subtext and people are implying things. But there needs to be a clarity so that the audience can follow it pretty quickly so I think those are my three and there there are artful ways to absolutely do that. and, and yeah, Marty's master of that sure she's an absolute master of that so she was really great at helping me figure out how to keep all the tone and the wink and all the nuance to it but actually just being clear enough that human beings can follow it <laughs> which is good uh, definitely getting into the scene as late as possible is yeah. the is yeah. the key. To, you just don't have you just don't have time. The scripts are so short. Yeah, and if you you're, you've broken a compelling story with twists and turns, you need to you need to execute it quickly. And it's hard as a writer. You want to live with your characters. Yeah, you, you want to ramp into a scene. You want a four page scene with exactly. lots of jokes where there's yeah. every scene is a short film and yeah. you, don't, you don't have and I'm sure you know you've heard like the kill your babies thing of just like not getting attached to your dialogue like you wrote a great line it doesn't matter like nobody cares you just ha- you just have to make it work I think that for me a big thing too was just understanding that when you have a 120 person crew working on a show your script is no longer like your project it's a technical document that will be distributed to departments and they will prepare things based on that document. So it becomes a very different thing than an indie film script. Also, they're a very different thing if you just casually put in that there's a bobblehead chihuahua, and just because that's the only thing that you could think of being on a desk at the time is a bobblehead chihuahua, some poor prop person will spend hours and hours on the internet searching for the bobblehead chihuahua and come back to you with a heavy heart saying, well, I'm sorry, but I could only find a bobblehead kitten and feel like this epic failure, and you're like, it doesn't even matter, you could just, it could be a can of soda, I'm so sorry. 
So oh, having no. to factor in production is a fantastic. Yeah. It's a real learning curve. Yes, sir. All right, so how do you, uh, my question is, how do you come up with good ideas for characters in your uh, shows? Yeah, can you talk about creating interesting characters? Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, for me and for Marty, I feel like we feel like there's a little bit of us in each character. So it's sort of um, in a world that you create, right? You, you need people who represent different things and want different things because sort of what makes it all go is that they all want different things that they can't get. You know what I mean? So it's like they're kind of archetypes, but then you make them specific by living in them a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's starting like and for us in a place that feels really real. So just imagining if you're in a workplace, who's always there? You always have the Joker, you always have the bitch, you always have you know. Why did she point at me for Joker and bitch? <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah. So I don't know, <laughs> sister. Yeah, but so and again, like I had some characters for my short, but not all of them. So I had created a few, but um, we definitely. And the thing is, it's funny for us is when I was pitching the show. We're like, oh my god, it's amazing. The cast will change every season because we have a show within a show. But our main cast will stay, our producers. And at the time, it was like, oh my god, amazing! Like just endless possibilities. And it's like now, it's like, oh my god, endless what do we possibilities. Do? Oh, no. So we have we create a new a new cast for the show every. Now I'm season. just thinking about the character that you have that you love yep. that suddenly she goes into production <laughs> because you love her so much, right? Um, I'm curious to hear from you guys, too, uh, and it seems like a good opportunity to talk about working and writing for actors and how that starts to change the characters as well. That's a whole other collaboration that, you know, a lot of writers who are just writing on spec don't get uh, to experience. It's amazing. Actually, one of our actors just walked in and is in the front row. In the front row. ready to mock me for the rest of the day about everything I say. But one of the joys about um, writing for Aol is like, you know, sometimes you write towards an actor's strength and sometimes you write just what you want to write and you have this image in your head of how you want it to be and how you want it to sound. And there's some actors that just get it and it's that magical moment where you write it and then it comes from them exactly how you want it to hear and it's perfect and it's great. And then there's other actors who then put a spin on it and make it even better and make you look so much smarter and so much funnier than you ever were. And, and I, I have that with Raul, which is, I, I love him. But you definitely have to write if, you know, not everyone is not everyone is quick speaking. And if you're writing rambling, like we write, Rob and I tend to write like huge chunks of dialogue for dogs. <laughs> that was actually a line I wrote back there. No, um... <laughs> Um, we would write these huge chunks of dialogues, and if you have an actor and actress who are more thoughtful and, and don't have that like quick East Coast cadence, it's just production-wise, then you have a 72-hour show. So it is writing for, for their strengths. But one of the fun things about our show is that she takes on abilities and talents when she eats brains, so I get to call Rose all the time and say, so what can you do? Like, can you do a cartwheel? Can you speak French? Can you, can you dance? Can you, you know, surf? So you get to write to her strengths. Uh, yes, questions, you guys. Uh, as an aspiring writer, where do I start? <laughs> Writing. Right. <laughs> Seriously, but... like, I'm not even kidding. People ask that question all the time, and it, it doesn't matter what job you get. It doesn't matter who you know. If you're not writing all the time and, and really honing your craft and you don't have that awesome short film or awesome spec, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. There's not a... It's not like... 
being an engineer where you go to school and then you do the apprenticeship. You just have to, you have to write. And then, yeah. I mean, we both have unconventional entry, entrees into <laughs> I, the I business. Think but what, everyone what kind of has an unconventional yeah. entree. That's, that's the best note. Everybody has an unconventional. There's, there's no internship or assistant job you're going to get that's going to lead you to get a job on TV if you don't, if you're not writing. I would, I would say the same thing is that it's just, the, it's, it's irrelevant until you have the work and you just have to write and write and write. And like I said, it sounds like it happened easily for me, but I literally started writing when I was five and it's all I've ever wanted to do. And by the way, it doesn't sound easy. It just sounds like it was yeah. a, a good timing. It was good timing. The fact that you had the job and that you were able, that's the other thing that's brilliant about yeah. your, your situation is you have a job that maybe you didn't necessarily love, maybe you did, but that you were able to like steal from like it's fodder just yeah. finding the fodder and everything is, yeah. the, is the best and and my day job actually really it, it helped me not only make my short but also sell my show which is something that I was telling another group um, a couple of weeks ago was like something so important to me is that when you have that day job or whatever you do if you PA if you intern if you do anything everything is a step and treat all those people with so much respect That's and take care of all those perfect. relationships and work really really hard because um, one thing that someone told me that's been invaluable is like to be a working writer, you kind of have to be, and it's not that we are, but incredible at everything. Like you have to be so hardworking, so good at writing, but you also have to be really, really good with your team, with people, with pitching you your ideas. Nice. You have, have to, to be, be really nice. nice. It's like, so anything you do towards your dream is worthwhile. And I would never like get frustrated or give up because you have a day job because my day job got me exactly where I am. And, um, and also just like really work hard and take care of people. Cause that's kind of what it's about is, is building your reputation for being like a trustworthy, hardworking, smart person who isn't going to give up. And, and I would add to that. Yeah. Uh, there are more opportunities than ever to get your material seen but it means put it up on YouTube, you know, put up a sketch show, put stuff on its feet. Well, so I you're am writing, writing a short for actors. Story for the internet. What's up? I am writing a short story for the internet. I'm that's editing yeah, it right now. Do it. Oh, that's Keep great. Keep doing it and get it out there. And the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And the better you get at it, the more people are going to see it. And, and uh, yeah. Marty gave me some good advice too, which is know your genre. So like, whatever you want to yeah. write, become an expert in it. Because one thing that's hard as you're asking people to mentor you or help you is if it doesn't really feel like you've done your homework. Like, the more you know, the better you're going to be able to ask specifically for what you need and want. And, and like, read every book you can. Listen to every podcast you can. I listen to The Nerdist. There's a podcast called The Children of Ten Do, which is, like, invaluable. Yeah. Like, so you just have to really, really decide what you want to do, care about it, and, like, never give up. I also think personal, any, anything yeah. that's personal, you're, you're, you yeah. wrote this based on your experience. Anything that's intrinsically you that you could really stand behind, people are, always tend to be more interested in that. You're the authority on your own life. So you can bring something to the table that no one else could bring, and really to en- embrace that I think is also really yeah. helpful. All right, let's very quickly uh, go through these last few questions. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about uh, subtext. And I don't know, I haven't read the source material, so I don't know if there was some of that in adapting it for TV, but finding the line between uh, too little subtext and how you find out, like, how you figure out what is acceptable and what is, like, crosses the line into sort of beating the viewer over the head with it, uh, just, like, coming out and saying too much. Um, For me, subtext is just that people don't mean what they say. So they're saying one thing and they mean another. And I think... um, the line that, again, Marty helped me find was, um, you can have that in television. It's just that 
your audience needs to be able to sort of track like, oh, she means something else. It just, for me, it's, it's letting people have two motives at once. That's another thing is sort of like watching people have an internal life. So that as a writer, even when you're breaking story, you're sort of like, this is what's really going on with her and this is what she's going to present. And sort of tracking those in a clean way, I think, yeah, I is think a good it's way. about honesty. And I think what, what yeah. you're describing is a really people do that all the time. They say one thing and they mean another. So if you're if you're doing that because that's what's honest for the character, I think the subtext works. But if you're trying to force subs, I'm going to do this so people think that it's not it's not honest and it's not going to work. There's also a lot of times for you were asking about kind of clarity. Usually that's when notes come in. <laughs> so you have a scene and you feel like you've perfect, perfectly crafted and there's subtext, subtext and, and then someone will want some clarification. So sometimes it's better to leave the sub, subtext in the script and wait for someone to force you to clarify. And I was going to say too, I've noticed with myself and with other writers that I know that um, in the beginning it can be really scary to be understood because then people can really criticize you. And so the more vague and arty you are, the more you're like, ah, they just didn't get it. They just don't get me. You know what I mean? But, like, to really be clear and to be like, this is what I meant. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. It's really vulnerable because people can just say, I don't like what you're doing. And you can't say, oh, you didn't get it because it was plain. It was clear. Unless you were saying, I was being forthcoming because it was ironic. <laughs> right. But so <laughs> layered I, in subtext. Yeah, it's layered. There's all subtext. You didn't get the subtext. You didn't get the subtext. Obviously. So I would say, like, for me, a big lesson has been just don't hide in it. Like, it's, it's really important to character, but... I find myself, you know, sometimes in moments of feeling insecure about the story I'm telling that I just want to be vague because I don't really know yet. And that that's not subtext. That's just, like, you didn't do your work. <laughs> All right. I, I killed too much time at the beginning. I apologize. But we'll have time for one more question. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, I'm very, very new to writing. Um, can I call myself a writer if nobody gives me money for it? No? Yes. Wait, can you call yourself a writer if someone gives you money for it? If nobody's giving me money for yes. it. Yes. Okay. I was going to say, if then, you could call okay. yourself a writer because someone's... I would call you lucky if someone's giving you money for <laughs> okay. it. <laughs> a working writer. That's, that's the difference. <laughs> yeah, then you're okay. a working writer and lucky. Because, yeah. Um, no, of course you can. I mean, I was, you started, we started writing around the same age. And please, I was putting on plays in my backyard. If you asked me what I was, same. I would say writer. Yeah. Like, that would be the first thing. Yeah, I read a book called Urgent Cries Ignored at five. <laughs> I was writing. Urgent Cries Ignored is what I'm changing the name of my production company to because that is brilliant. E-R-G-E-N-T and there was a dagger with blood on the front. But I think you're a writer as soon as you're writing. Okay. So my first thing, I did um, did, uh, Donna Summer on the radio. I don't know if you're anyone's, that that album, because I'm 110, so there were these things called albums. I don't know if you're familiar with them. (laughs) There was record players, but on the front it was Donna Summer literally on a radio and uh, and looking all glamorous and on the back she's in a cab like kind of laying on her stomach with a cab driver's hat and that's some bad girls and hot stuff and all those songs so I thought obviously she's um she is a hooker who really is aspiring to own a cab so she's just working as a prostitute in order to make enough money to someday purchase a cab and fulfill her dream of being a cab driver so that was it was it was called on the it was called on the radio (laughs) Look for it next season but on you're, you're HBO. Writing, if you're writing, you're a writer, as yeah. far as... Uh, and keep at it. Uh, please uh, check out iZombie premieres when? Next week? Um, it premieres this coming Tuesday on The CW at 9 o'clock, right Excellent. after The Flash. And Unreal premieres... June 1st. So we got a little ways to wait. On Marilyn right. Rose's birthday. What? Very fortuitous. <laughs> oh my God. I see great you things. Uh, please give a round of applause to our guests, Diane and Sarah. Thank you guys all for coming out. We appreciate it.
Now leaving Nerdist.com. 